Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today my guest is Brian A. Garner, the editor-in-chief of Black's Law Dictionary, a popular ABA journal columnist, and a distinguished research professor of law at Southern Methodist University. Professor Garner, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, glad to be here. Now, you're here to talk with us about your most recent book, Nino and Me, My Unusual Friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia. Can you talk a little bit about what drove you to write this book? Well, uh, several things. I'm a writer, and writers write. This is a very different kind of book from any that I've written before. Most of my books are either reference books or pedagogical books. The two books that I wrote with Justice Scalia were in that realm. But this one is a, a memoir, and it's my first attempt ever to do a memoir. But I think part of it was my way of coping with the grief of having lost a close, irreplaceable friend. And just because the story was so compelling, the chronicle of how our friendship developed, how our collaboration developed. And it was such a fascinating story that my friends who, who knew about it were always interested to hear exactly how this whole thing happened. And uh, it was, a, in many ways, a kind of dreamlike experience. And I wanted to make sense of the events that had, had occurred in our friendship and collaboration. And I wanted to pay tribute, of course, to my late co-author. Now, as you mentioned, a memoir is a different kind of work than you've produced before. When you sat down to write it, what kind of an audience were you anticipating or writing for? I can think of a multitude of different kinds of people who could be interested in your working relationship. What did you picture in your mind as your audience for Nino and Me? Well, I think it has a number of themes in the book. It's going to appeal mostly to lawyers and judges and to word lovers. But I did have in mind anyone who is interested in the nature of friendship and how friendships develop. And in a way, I think our modern culture has lost the traditional notion of what friendship is all about. Partly it's because of social media. It may be modern life, but you know, friendship has traditionally been seen as one of the most sacred of all moral bonds. And a lot of important writers have thought that you are lucky if you go through life and have as many as two or three close friends. Well, I would certainly consider this one of the great friendships of my life. And um, so I wanted to pay homage to friendship and the nature of how it develops and what it entails. So I think people with an interest in relationships will find the book appealing. But frankly, it's going to be more for those with an intellectual bent and those who can tolerate two men talking a great deal about words and language. And so uh, we did a lot of that. And in this book, you start off very properly for a lexicographer with a particular word, and you define this word, and this word has real meaning for your friendship with Justice Scalia, and that word is snoot. Can you please define for our audience what a snoot is? Well, let's see what I say. Yeah, I, so I did a kind of uh, mocked-up Oxford English Dictionary-style entry for snoot. Uh, it's an acronym for one of two things, syntax nerd of our time or Sprachgefühl necessitates our ongoing tendence. That sounds all very pretentious. But Snoot was developed by 
first used in print by David Foster Wallace, the great novelist and essayist. David was a friend of mine. I mean, it was a very curious thing that led me to Justice Scalia was an evening I had with David Foster Wallace in Los Angeles in early 2006. And I was interviewing various writers and judges about the art of writing. And David insisted that I should definitely try to interview Justice Scalia. He didn't have the same political persuasion, he thought, as Justice Scalia, but he was fascinated by Scalia's command of language, and he urged me to seek out uh, Justice Scalia. I did so and was later able to put David Foster Wallace and Scalia together and uh, arrange for them to have lunch together in Claremont. So the book is actually dedicated to David Foster Wallace. And it says, to the memory of David Foster Wallace, 1962 to 2008, without whose intervention, the events recounted after page 12 of this book could never have occurred. So that, that is kind of a remarkable thing that David played a role in the development of our friendship. But SNOOT was intended as a, it's an acronym, as I say, intended to be a more positive term than grammar Nazi or usage nerd or syntax snob or language police. But that's the basic idea. Somebody who cares intensely about words, usage, grammar, and is always thinking about how to use language uh, most clearly, succinctly, and powerfully. So for any of our listeners who do not yet know about your partnership with Justice Scalia, uh, could you describe for us the various projects that you worked on together and the two books that you wrote? Well, we first wrote Making Your Case, which appeared in 2008. Basically, I wrote Justice Scalia and asked him for an interview. He declined but said he'd like to have breakfast over the course of the breakfast. I talked him into the interview, and we did the interview. So we had met twice as of early October 2006. And we just hit it off. I mean, we just liked each other. I really liked him. I mean, I thought I might be misreading how much he liked me, but we were both just enthusiastic about discussing language and advocacy and writing. And so he was very curious about my books. And I had the temerity, the audacity to suggest that we should co-author a book on the art of advocacy. I FedExed the letter to his house. And weirdly, 10 minutes after it was delivered, I had a conversation with my father and I told him that I had written this letter and suggested a book. And my father said, oh, Brian, that's embarrassing. I mean, the, the chutzpah in that. And, and I immediately cringed thinking, oh, dad is right. I, I really shouldn't have thought that just two meetings and liking each other that he would want to write a book with me. And dad said, Brian, you really ought to get the FedEx canceled, if you possibly can. It's just, that's just too embarrassing for words. And so I had my assistant call FedEx to see if we could cancel delivery, but it had just been delivered 10 minutes earlier. So that was that. But I thought, well, at least the embarrassment will go no further. Nobody but uh, the Scalia family and I will know. And about two weeks later, got a, a letter from him accepting my invitation and saying, He'd like to do the book together. We did have some turbulent times at the beginning of our collaboration. Over a misunderstanding, he canceled uh, collaborating with me, but 
We cleared up the misunderstanding. It's all a fascinating story, a dramatic story, really. I felt very nervous for you reading it. There was, an, and I knew the ending. I knew that these books had happened, and yet I felt such tension. <laughs> You're twenty percent of the way into the book, and he's accusing me of trying to capitalize on his name and not using any of his material. And yet you know that there's still 80% of the book to come, so it must have worked out. But it was a difficult thing to work out. And I suppose it took some tenacity on my part to hang in there and try to overcome his wanting to cancel our collaboration. But in an amazing way, it did work out. We did the first book, and it was very well received. We appeared on 60 Minutes together. I wanted to do a second book, but he said, you know, writing these books is so difficult. I really don't want to do a second book. I just, I can't see it. So I was disappointed about that. The other book was going to be on interpretation. And about six months after he declined that, he called me and said, you know, Brian, I miss you. Because we'd spent a lot of time together in his chambers on the first book. And he really enjoyed writing. We both just loved it. And he said, I miss you. And I said, well, all we have to do is undertake the second book and we'll be back together all the time. So he said, let's do it. And we wrote the second book. We ended up making over 40 appearances together in various venues, beginning with the Kennedy Center for Performing Arts, an almost full house back in July 2008. And then, we, you know, went on television programs, did interviews together. It was just an amazing experience for a lawyer from Dallas. And that's another thing that I'd like to talk to you about, because as I was reading this book, I found it very inspirational, and I hope it's a lesson that I take into my own life, that you will always make the ask. I think many people are very intimidated by people of the stature of, of you know Justice Scalia and wouldn't think to even suggest a collaboration. What would be your advice to young lawyers or anyone listening who has an idea or has a person in their lives that they'd like to become their mentor? What would be your advice to them? Well, I think in a way I'm answering this partly because I probably get a dozen lawyers a year asking me to co-author books with them. And they act as if it won't be much effort. The fact is, when you get to a certain age, you realize that any endeavor is going to require, any serious endeavor is going to require a lot of time. I mean, he and I spent thousands of hours on these books, and I think a lot of people probably don't quite appreciate that or understand it. And I don't think it would have been appropriate for me to invite him to write the book if he hadn't already been citing my own work in his opinions and he took me seriously as a lexicographer and as a grammarian. So having already written 20 books myself, I had sort of earned my bona fides in his view as an author. He had never written a book, and he was curious about the experience of what it would be like to write a book. I mean, he did an essay called A Matter of Interpretation that was turned into a book, but that was really just an essay, and it was kind of put together by the publisher. It was a different sort of undertaking. So even though the rest of the world would never consider it this way, he very much saw us as equals. I didn't see it that way. I still don't see it that way. But he insisted. You know, he said very early on, Brian, you're not my law clerk. You are my co-author. And even when we appeared together, he insisted on sharing 
stage time 50-50. He didn't want to go on to the Pierce Morgan show without me. He insisted that I be there with him because it was about the book. Even though Pierce Morgan and his producers wanted to exclude me from the interview, Justice Scalia basically said, I'm not going on without Brian. So I think there does need to be some sense of having earned a partnership, even if, as I say, the rest of the world doesn't see it and you don't quite see it yourself. I did see it in the literary sense that our styles would work together. But the other thing about mentors is that you can't just walk up to somebody and say, will you be my mentor? You really have to cultivate a relationship. I guess the shocking thing about my partnership with Justice Scalia is that with only two meetings, I proposed this collaboration. But it was only because of his intense interest in my writing and my books that I did that. I don't think I would have done it otherwise. One of the other things that I would love to get into with you is you describe very thoroughly the processes that you went through with Justice Scalia in writing the first and the second book. But there were some real differences, and I found that so interesting. Could you please expand a little bit about that for our listeners? And just a note for our listeners, if you do hear in the background some construction noise, I apologize for that. The ABA is undergoing some renovations. Professor Garner, could you talk a little bit about the differences between writing book one and book two? Sure, Lee, but only if you agree to call me Brian from this point on. (laughs) If you insist. (laughs) Yeah. So think about the practicalities of co-authoring a book with a Supreme Court justice. If I do the first draft and he just revises what I've written, then I'm basically performing the function of a law clerk. And we don't have, I don't think we have the full benefit of his creativity. At least we'd run the risk of it. And if he does the first draft of a section, then I may be too deferential to his writing. And that's a problem as well. So I came up with this suggestion early on that we would write the same sections of Making Your Case simultaneously, and we'd do two sections per week for a year, and we'd have the book finished. And that's what we did. And he was so assiduous about sticking to the timeline. Every Friday in the mid-afternoon, I would get an email from him with his two sections. We'd already agreed on what the sections for that week would be. He would write it, and I would write it. We'd write it independently. And then I would meld what he had written with what I had written into one section. So a typical section of making your case I mean, if you were to trace it back to its original lineage, it would be maybe a Garner paragraph, two Scalia paragraphs, half a Garner paragraph, half Scalia, and then two more Scalia's and two more Garner's and then one more Scalia. And it would just be a matter of weaving the section together. Occasionally, we'd have uh, disagreements, in which case we'd have to figure out which approach we were going to take. And we'd always do that in each other's presence. But... I wanted the full benefit of his creativity about every section. And we both worked really hard to do that. Then we would get together and read every section aloud back and forth to each other, trying to figure out, can we say this any better? Is there a nicer, snappier way of putting this? And so we spent dozens of hours doing that in his chambers. It was just a lot of fun. The second book was on interpretation and 
you know, by now we trusted each other. We knew each other. There was less concern about getting each other's full creativity, I guess, because it was not a pedagogical book about advocacy, but this was a much more research-oriented book on interpretation. And there were some things that he simply had to write that I would not have been qualified to write about, for example, extraterritoriality canon or the stuff on administrative law. He did the first drafts there. But with both books, one thing we did do is we both went over it and edited it so fully that, as he used to tell audiences, we couldn't agree who had written what in the first place. And it was all very much co-authored. And that, that was just very, was a very rewarding thing to do, to take basically a field, whether it was textualism or advocacy, that we thought nobody had really dealt with in a, as pithy a way as we wanted to, and sum up the entire field in one set of covers and make it eloquent. I mean, we tried to make it beach reading for lawyers. We may not have succeeded at that, but the goal was to write books that lawyers would want to take to the beach. Now, as you mentioned, there were some disagreements about how to treat various parts of language or format issues. And you say that there were four main issues that you would then, in live events, debate with him. Could you talk a little bit about that for our listeners? Yes. Uh, we had this problem I guess it was originally about contractions. We almost canceled our first book. We're both stubborn people, and I use contractions. I've used contractions since 1991. I was shocked to find out he didn't use contractions and objected so strongly to them. Well, I've written about contractions, and I feel strongly in favor of them. And on this point, he relented. As he liked to tell audiences, he relented most of the time when we had disagreements. And that's probably true. I mean, one of the lessons, I think, of our friendship, and one of the things that I hope people take away from the book, is how open Justice Scalia was to persuasion, how open-minded he was, and willing to compromise if he thought somebody else had a, a good idea that was meritorious. So we used contractions in the first book, but then we decided that we would debate certain points. I mean, should an advocate use contractions in a brief? We debated that. We debated where should citations go? I strongly believe that all citations should go in footnotes. And one of the banes of legal writing is numerical pollution of the page with all kinds of bibliographic material that just overwhelms, it swamps the prose. And lawyers, on the whole, don't write very well, partly because they are polluting the page with bibliographic material between sentences. So Justice Scalia thought otherwise, and we debated that. We debated whether you should have substantive footnotes. He's a proponent of some substantive footnotes in advocacy. I say, really, you can write without putting sentences in footnotes at all. That it should, You shouldn't have to read footnotes. And you shouldn't even have to glance at the footnotes to know what the authority is. You can say up in the text, three years ago in Flom versus Baumgartner, this court held it so-and-so. And you know what court it is. You know how old it is. If it's a leading case, you even know the name of the case. The only thing we don't need is 753 F3rd 575, 578. Nobody needs to read that or skip over that. And you don't want your reader skipping. In any event, we had these debates. What was the other debate? Sexist language. He was a very masculine writer in the sense that he would 
use a lot of generic masculine pronouns. If a lawyer thinks that he, and of course I, in those days, would not say if a lawyer thinks that they, in reference to the lawyer, some people do that today, and increasingly that's considered acceptable. I draw the line and I don't do that myself and I don't advocate it. But I also think you can write in a gender-neutral way without using the generic masculine pronoun. In any event, he went my way on the various points in the style of the book, but we did have our very lively debates. And a lot of people think that those debates that we had really liven up the book a great deal. I agree. I think that it's interesting seeing the different perspectives. What do you think would be most surprising to people who had not had the opportunity to meet Justice Scalia and spend time with him the way you did? Well, just what a wonderfully kind human he was, how good-humored he was. I mean, he had a temper, and he was sometimes impatient, <laughs> and that comes through in the in the memoir. I mean, this is a very affectionate memoir, but it's, it's an honest memoir, as he would have wanted it to be. He would have wanted, I'm convinced he would have wanted our story told, and we had an agreement that the first of us to die would receive a tribute from the other. I'm sure that Neither one of us thought it would be a book-length treatment at that point, and neither one of us thought it would be any time soon. I mean, I, in one of my last conversations with him, I uh, assured him that I hoped and thought that he would live to be 100, but uh, that didn't come to pass. In any event, he would have insisted that our chronicles be absolutely true, and I've done my utmost to make it that way. I think people would have been surprised by his empathy. I mean, the lessons that I take from the book, there are eight lessons that come out of the stories in the book. His great humor, don't take yourself too seriously. His open-mindedness, be open to persuasion. His empathetic persistence, help friends in need, which he certainly did for me on more than one occasion. Just the, the sense of joy, almost the boyish joy that he would sometimes express. Can I read a little section to you? On that point? Please do. Please do. So this is uh, after we finished making your case. One day I'm sitting in my office, and I guess making your case has been out maybe a couple of years, and I get this exuberant phone call, and here's how it goes. Not long after our meeting, as I was sitting in my office in Dallas, I received a phone call from Justice Scalia. He says, Brian, people are listening. People are really listening. He sounded giddy. What do you mean, I said. You know how we say in making your case not to use up all your time at oral argument, but to sit down early if there's nothing left that's useful to say? Yes. It happened this morning in our court. Both sides did it. The justices couldn't believe it. We got out 20 minutes early. That's amazing, I said. I haven't seen it in nearly 30 years on the bench, and certainly not in the 25 years I've been here at the court. Wow. They got it from our book, Brian. Of course they did. They got it from our book. They're paying attention. The petitioners did it, and the justices all glanced at each other. Then the respondents did it, and we were stunned. We were all buzzing about it afterward in the robing room. I asked, did your colleagues acknowledge that it was because of our book? Well, no. Did you tell them? Of course not. I didn't want to claim credit. It would have been immodest. But you and I know, that's why the first thing I did in getting back here to Chambers was to call you. 
you and I know. Yes, we do, Nino. Congratulations. So that kind of ability to share a sense of joy, he was rejoicing at that moment. And it was, and it was kind of a private joy because he didn't want to claim credit with the other justices. I think it's one of the big lessons. The others, I would say, are commiseration. When there's cause for grief, commiserate with friends, as we certainly did when David Foster Wallace died. David, as our listeners may know, tragically committed suicide in 2008, two years after bringing me and Justice Scalia together. Number six I have is forgiveness. Improve yourself and practice forgiveness. He was amazing in that way. And when people would attack him mercilessly and unfairly in the press, and I would be upset on his behalf, he would just say, Brian, forgive them. Just forgive them. And he would cite the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And he really lived that. The seventh lesson, I think, is remember your roots. Remember the lessons of your childhood. And we like to talk a good deal about our childhoods. And finally, what goes into the examined life? Reflect on life and treasure your friendships. I think that comes out of the book in story after story. So some people have said, well, why didn't you reflect more on the lessons that you learned from Justice Scalia in the book itself? And my answer to that is, this is a chronicle of our experiences. And the lessons come through the stories in the same way that stories in all kinds of books can teach lessons but I wasn't trying to be the moralist drawing the lesson explicitly for each story. But I think every single account in the book does have some point to it. I think one of the most touching parts of the book, and you actually wrote for the ABA Journal shortly after Justice Scalia passed about this um, in the April 2016 issue, was your last trip with Scalia. And it was quite a journey. Uh, Could you talk just briefly about that? Well... We spent two of his last three weeks on Earth together, and he flew to Dallas, and then we, he and my wife Caroline and I flew to Hong Kong and then Singapore and then back to Hong Kong, and it was quite an adventure. He just, he really wanted to go to Hong Kong with us. He knew that Caroline had family there, and it was an extraordinary adventure, and he loved that vacation. I mean, we there were just so many things that we did. We did a few speaking engagements, but it was mostly traveling incognito. And I think probably what you're referring to is on our last full day in Hong Kong, we went to a Taoist temple where people were praying and shaking sticks out of little boxes that are supposed to sort of tell you the future. There was a palm reader on site, and the palm reader was called a soothsayer. I said, let's go get our palms read. And and Caroline and I got our palms read. The soothsayer predicted that I would live to be 88 easily and that Caroline would live to be 87 easily. And I said, Nino, uh, get get your palm read. Come on. He said, I don't want to get my palm read. I said, come on, Nino, get your palm read. And he said, no, I, I, I really don't want to know when I'm going to die. And it really just stopped me in my tracks. Uh, that occurred on February 2nd, 2016, 10 days before he died. And of course, um, 
nobody had any inkling because when we returned from Asia, he was robust, he was healthy. None of us had had a cold. We remarked on how none of us had felt ill in any way the whole trip. And um, so when he did die just eight days after we said goodbye, um, it, it, it came as quite a shock. Another anecdote from that trip that I just thought really could illustrate him as a person uh, is you're getting off the plane together. And he says, oh, wait, I, I forgot something. And can you tell that that story? Because I, I, I found that very affecting as well. Yeah, let me let me read that to you. It's a little bit longer. You sort of have to, I have to preface it by what happened just five minutes before we left. The marshals were taking us to DFW airport. The marshals were in front of my house and we had about five minutes to get ready. And, and Justice Scalia said, Caroline, do you have a knit cap? My head gets cold on airplanes and I wish I had a, a watch cap, a knit cap. And I didn't think we had one, but Caroline said, well, I, I do have one. And she ran upstairs and got the cap for him. And he, he wore it on the flights to Hong Kong and then to Singapore and then back to Hong Kong and back to the United States. So he, he had that hat on all the time on the airplanes. And it, it was a wonderful thing, I guess, for him to have because it made him more comfortable. But then as we were getting off the plane at DFW, and I take up the book on page 337. Finally, after 15 hours in the air, we landed at Dallas-Fort Worth International Airport. Everyone scrambled to get things out of the overhead bins and get off the plane. The crowded aisles made it impossible for me to get back to Justice Scalia. He was in row 14. We were up in row four. Caroline handed me his suit bag. Let's meet him on the jet bridge, I said. But I would... I would have to meet her there as well, because even though we'd been seated beside each other, we were on separate aisles. Being among the first two or three off the plane, I waited a few feet away in the little bulge in the jet bridge. Caroline soon came off and said she'd go out to the gate to meet the marshals, doubtless the same ones who had dropped us off 12 days before. She took the suit bag outside with her. It took about three minutes for Justice Scalia to come into view from the door. He came off and said, did Lyne get my suit bag? Yes, she took it on out, safe and sound. I need to get into my briefcase, he said, handing it to me. We propped it up on my knee as he opened it. He said, oh no, I've forgotten something. Nino, Moyne's bracelet is right here. You've got both your iPods. Is it a document? No, it's not that. People were flooding past us. I've got to go back to my seat. What is it, Nino? Let's get out to the marshals. They can get whatever it is. No, I have to go back and get it. There's still 200 people trying to get off. What is it? I'll go get it. Never mind. I've got to go back. He wouldn't tell me what it was he'd left behind. And now he was fighting the crowd to get back to his seat. Some six seats back from the plane's entrance on the far side. I wondered what this mysterious thing was. It took 60 seconds for him to get back to the far aisle, then turn right and disappear from my view. Two flight attendants were telling everyone, thank you for flying American, again and again. I knew the marshals must be wondering what was going on. 
If I was worried with what little information I had, they must have been really worried. I texted Caroline that Justice Scalia had gone back onto the plane to retrieve something. After three minutes, with no sign of him, I urgently told one of the flight attendants, quote, I need your help. There's a United States Supreme Court justice on board. Actually, he needs your help. He's trying to get something from his seat, 14J. Please go back and help him. I don't know what's wrong. It's Justice Scalia. Seeing my distress and concerned herself, she went back to the far aisle, going against the onslaught of exiting passengers. No one getting off seemed concerned about having seen something troubling, so I felt comforted by that. Where is he? Caroline texted me. Back at his seat, I replied. Flight attendant helping. After what was probably another 90 seconds, but felt like an eternity, he came into view again, smiling. I've got it. What in the world was it? Your knit cap. He pulled it from behind his back with a flourish. Oh, goodness, Nino, you really had me worried. I said I'd borrow it, and I had to return it. We walked off the jet bridge where Caroline was standing with four U.S. Marshals, including Ralph Tenorio. Justice Scalia handed the cap back to her. Your cap, madam. We strode toward the nearby exit. You really had me worried, Nino. We didn't need that cab back. I couldn't not return it to you. I wasn't... Hmm, it's hard to read. I wasn't raised that way. It would have disappointed my mother. So that was, you know, within moments of our uh, hugging each other goodbye and saying and saying goodbye, and he said, you know, I'll, I'll see you again soon. Uh, but as I say, that was eight days before he died. Wow. Well, Brian, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Where can our listeners who are interested in picking up the book, in reading more of your work, in maybe finding the two books that you and Justice Scalia wrote together, what would be a good place for them to go to? Is there a website or social media account you'd like to point them to? I would just say... um go to your own favorite online bookseller, whatever that happens to be, whatever's more convenient for you. Some people love Amazon. Some people have an animus toward Amazon and prefer Barnes and Noble or prefer some other source. But it's so easy to get books that way. And, you know, I like bricks and mortar stores, absolutely. But I do think the internet has been wonderful for book authors everywhere because an author, it used to be an author was dependent on having a bricks-and-mortar store supply the books and have them on hand. And it was very frustrating in the old days when you know, some of my books, uh, uh, most bookstores were very good about stocking my books, but some books wouldn't be. And if a bricks-and-mortar store didn't order enough books or have a big enough buy, as the publishers put it, then the author was simply uh, out of luck. And so I'm, I'm a big proponent of online book sales. So I would simply say, do it that way, and it's painless. It'll be to you in a couple of days. I do hope people will really relish this book. I think, as Erwin Chemerinsky uh, said in his blurb, it probably gives a better sense of what Justice Scalia was like as a person and what it was like to work with him than anything that he had ever written, uh, ever, ever read. And um, I certainly hope that's true. Uh, it's my tribute to my late co-author. Whatever you think of Justice Scalia, 
I think you'll understand the man better uh, after reading this book. And are there any plans for an audiobook version? Uh, not yet, but uh, we'll, we'll see what the publisher says. All right. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining me and joining Professor Brian A. Garner, author of Nino and Me, My Unusual Friendship with Justice Antonin Scalia.